Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Stuka Seed Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. As promised, we're back. Um, and uh, this is part two of uh, the week's, I was going to say entertainment, that might be putting it a bit grandly, but a lot's happened since uh, we were last together, and the Welsh Open, of course, continuing. And uh, Mark Selby lost uh, to Aaron Hill, and I meant to mention last time, of course, Mark has spoken uh, just in the last week about his wife, Vicky's cancer diagnosis. Um, she'd been having treatment for the last year. Very sadly, one of her best friends, one of their best friends, passed away recently of the same uh, cancer at the age of 44. So it's been a very sad time. Phil Haig uh, came down to the Championship League for, uh, for the Metro and uh, wrote a number of stories. That was one of them. And Mark uh, spoke about it. So obviously everyone in the snooker world sends their best wishes to Mark. I mean, his form hasn't been great this season, but it's, of course it's worth saying that you know everyone has things going on off the table. We don't always... The public don't always know about them and clearly... They can affect how you perform on the table if your mind, you know, isn't on entirely on the snooker, and that, that's true of a lot of people. I also wanted to say that you know the, the, snoo- the snooker media, the snooker press, the regular press anyway, have known about this for the last year, but have not reported it because it's not our business. If Mark wants to speak about it, that's up to him, and he did eventually, um, and obviously that's his right to do that. But it's his private life, and I mention that because the media get a bad rap in general, and journalists get a bad rap in general, but the fact is, we didn't report that out of respect for Mark, and that's true of a number of stories, because it's no one's business unless the person involved wants it to be other people's business. Phil did a good story on it, proper journalism came down, spent the day speaking to players, did a number of stories, and that was one of them. So I'm sure everybody uh, wants to pass on their best wishes to Mark Selby. We've got a lot of emails, and quite a few more have come in, actually, <laughs> since... Uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to do a part three, because I remember The Godfather... And uh, the part three of that wasn't so great. But uh, we'll try and plough through as many as we can. We're going to start with Daniel Clark, because Daniel is, has given me what can only be described as a proper shoeing. <laughs> yes, he has. Uh, we've had a few emails about the Saudi Arabia thing, and this is what Daniel has to say. Firstly, I have to say I generally enjoy your podcast. The word generally is doing a lot of work in that sentence. He says, I look forward to it every week. One of the main reasons is that when it comes to the major issues in the sport, you often have a take I hadn't previously considered. And 90% of the time, I'm left agreeing with you. That said, when it comes to the now upcoming tournaments in Saudi Arabia, I couldn't, I couldn't disagree with you more. For me, no money is enough for the sport to sell its soul. Everyone else doing it is not a valid reason to follow suit. And sport and politics throughout history have been inextricably linked to both for good and bad. The reason for this email... Out of breath here, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <coughs> we'll, we'll continue. The reason for this email, however... I think I was reading it too quickly, that's what it was. Uh, the reason for this email, however, relates to a comment you made on your most recent podcast 
when you said you don't hear any of the people who are complaining about the torment in Saudi Arabia saying anything about China because that's not fashionable. I was so furious when I heard this that I immediately turned off the podcast. Now, just jumping in now, and this is a serious subject, Daniel, I know, but you did well to last that long because I suspect you probably had to sit through the cigarette-based uh, snooker player jokes. But anyway, uh, we continue. Uh, to have one of the voices of the game make such a tone-deaf statement was astonishing. I dread to think what any female, gay or trans listeners thought when they heard that you might as well have dismissed those who speak out as the liberal wokerati. Well, of course, they're free to write in, and you don't speak for them. But anyway, we continue. At this remove, I'm sure this was just a throwaway remark and not meant to come across as it did. But at a time, at a time when sport is looking to increase diversity, words matter. On the point of China, we may well be wrong. We may well be the wrong... On the point of China, I think I should be... We may well have the wrong US president elected in November away from an advance on Taiwan. Much like Russia, Russia and Ukraine, this would inevitably and rightly lead to a global response with sport again in the crosshairs. On the strength of today's news, however, I'm sure Will Snooker will be quickly announcing the exciting new Taipei Masters, Snooker's new fifth major. Uh, I slightly garbled some of that, Daniel. I think there was a couple of words out. Anyway, I think we got the thrust of what you're saying. Thanks for writing in. I'm sorry you feel that way. In terms of off-the-cuff remarks, I have to say it's all off-the-cuff <laughs> because... Uh, a throwaway remark, you say. It's all throwaway because I don't have a script here, as you probably guessed already. Uh, I do think there's hypocrisy um, around this subject. Let's be clear about sport in China. It's all state-backed, OK? The sponsorship is all state-backed. Their entire sporting infrastructure is state-backed. And they, like Saudi Arabia, like a lot of countries, have questions to answer when it comes to human rights, except they're never brought up in a snooker context. There was an event announced recently, it wasn't mentioned, and that was the hypocrisy I was pointing out. But I think we'll leave that to one side, because I think the arguments uh, around the issue of going to Saudi Arabia and sports watching all of that have been quite well um, heard and are known about. I want to shift it back to snooker. Now, you, Daniel, may well be one of these people I don't know, but there certainly are a lot of them who have said recently, with some justification, there's not enough prize money in snooker, it's not international enough. It isn't growing fast enough. Will Snooker don't make proper business decisions. So my question to you and others is, if this isn't the answer, what is? OK, this is a multi-million pound deal, 10-year deal, bringing in money into the sport, opening up a brand new market and following in the path that other sports have very successfully gone down. It's going to grow the game. It's going to grow prize money within the game and there'll be more earning opportunities for players. So if this isn't the answer, what is? What is the answer? Just going to countries on the off chance they might be interested is not. You can't just take a ranking of it anywhere. It costs fortunes. So people who want to complain about these issues, and, and as I say, they have a, uh, a right to complain about prize money not being high enough, the game not being international enough, more opportunity to play, all that stuff. If this isn't the answer, what is the answer? As for selling its soul, what soul? It's a professional sport. We're just following the same business decisions that other sports are doing in the world that we live in. Uh, this is an incredible deal for snooker. It's not to say there aren't issues around it. There are, and they've been discussed, and they'll continue to be discussed, I'm sure, just as there are issues around a lot of countries that we go to or that we might go to. Uh, but the fact is, you wouldn't, not a single player, not one, has said anything bad about this. Quite the opposite. They're all looking forward to it. It's not because they're scared to speak out or anything like that. It's that they recognise the opportunities that there are, and that's a fact. But you're absolutely entitled, of course, to be against it, and you're absolutely entitled not to watch it. You're absolutely entitled to switch this podcast off right now. In fact, I advise it, because we've got some terrible jokes coming up later. And seriously, you can do yourself a favour. We have more feedback on this issue. 
uh, Donal Murtar says, uh, a new rank event in Saudi Arabia was announced today. This follows hot on the heels of a new invitation event that will also take place in the kingdom. Since these announcements, there's been much debate about the pros and cons of hosting snooker tournaments in a country with a deplorable human rights record. Roughly speaking, in the pro corner, we have growing the game, and in the con corner, we have sports washing. It's been rumoured that female refs will not be allowed to officiate at these events in accordance with the Saudi authorities' antediluvian views on women's place in society. I've tried unsuccessfully to confirm these rumours. Do you know there's any truth to them? I'm sceptical. I'm sceptical about whether this rumour is true because I find it hard to believe World Snooker Tour would betray some of their most senior officials in this way. Selling out to the Saudis will inevitably be met with negative comment on account of their human rights record, but if it's discovered that WST have been complicit in gender discrimination as well, there's a tidal wave of negative publicity coming their way. Well, Donald, I'm not sure where these rumours come from. I'm guessing, I'm, I'm going to take a, a wild guess and say Twitter, OK? I would be very wary of believing anything you read on there. The fact is, these two events, so it's not just, of course, the snooker event, it's the World Pool Championship as well. They're both being run by Emily Fraser from Matchroom, OK? Emily is a very uh, dynamic, uh, well, she's been on the podcast, actually, but a very dynamic and a professional performer, and she's got a big team, and a lot of them are women. Women will be going out there, effectively running the event, I'm sure that female referees will be working on it. Um, so, as I, as I say, you know, the idea that this this is some sort of um, a diktat that's been handed down, I'd be very wary of. We'll see. I mean, the ranking event obviously needs a lot of referees. The invitation event doesn't. But I know for a fact that when the initial event was announced pre-COVID, it was definitely the case that female referees were going out there. I'd be amazed if they weren't. Um, on the same subject of Saudi, Phil Spivey... Uh, says, I'm loving the additional instalments of the podcast. Long may it continue. Intriguing news about the new ranking event in Saudi Arabia. I like the early season slot. It will ensure all players will endeavour to be match sharp at a time often characterised by post-summer rustiness. It will be interesting to hear more about the format of the event. Will it be a tiered system? I suspect the promoters will want some guarantee of the top players being at the event. And will the tournament involve longer matches? As snooker expands into other territories, which is what we want to see, it could get to the point where the calendar is very full. There are only 52 weeks in a year, so if more events in new places are added in the coming seasons, do you think some UK-based events might eventually be sacrificed to make room for them? If so, which ones? Obviously purely hypothetical at the moment, but could be a reality if snooker tournaments are set up around the world. Well, Phil, I mean, like you say, it is hypothetical. Uh, we'll have to see what happens in the next few years. I suspect for the, for the next, for the foreseeable, the, 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 the number of British tournaments will be about the same. I do feel that... Um, Working on the Welsh Open now, the Home Nation series, uh, the danger is, and someone made this point, and I kind of see what they mean, the more sort of big money international events there are, the more likely that top players are going to skip events like this. Of course, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Judd Trump are not in this one. Um, it may be that that could be looked at again when the 10-year deal is, is up for the Home Nations. It began 2016, so I've only got a couple more years to go of this series. I think it's been a good series, but maybe it could be looked at whether that means more prize money or whether there's more of an incentive to play and it could be a home nation's... I mean, call it a series. It's not really a series, is it? There's no overall prize for it. Maybe you could link the four together, have a prize for who does the best of them, something like that to, to give them a bit of a boost. Um, so that's an idea. But in terms of sort of the, the, the sort of spread of the game, I think we do want it to be more global. We want it to be more, more international. Put it this way, when I've retired, and a lot of people out there will be saying, let's hope that's soon, I know. But when I've retired, I would quite like, if I'm sat at home having a cup of tea and a plate of biscuits watching the snooker, I would quite like it to have moved on to be more international, going to places that maybe we haven't even thought of now that could host a tournament, rather than just being 
that sort of British base. There's nothing wrong with the British traumas. They're, they're historic and they're good. But at the same time, you know, we need to move the game on. And that's why it's important to look at international opportunities. My final word really on Saudi, and obviously it won't be the final word because this, this will continue to rumble on. But I genuinely think it would have been irresponsible of Will Snooker not to do this deal. This was a deal that is actually a bit of a landmark deal for Snooker in terms of what it means where we're going, the sort of um, the path that we're following that other sports have followed very successfully and the money it's going to bring into the game. This is why players you speak to are really looking forward to it and are really positive about it. Um, I think Alpha Bonzi's written about this actually, so it's not the final word. He's a couple of questions here. How close did the Welsh Open come to falling off the calendar in the dark days post-Regal, pre-home nations, lowest prize winning ranking points and a crappy piece of slate as a trophy? Well, the, the trophy, <laughs> that's your opinion of the trophy, it, it uh, divided opinion. It was quite distinctive. I mean, you know, Welsh slate and all the rest of it. I wasn't a massive fan myself, but I know other people. I think Phil Haig said on Talking Snooker that he uh, he really liked it. But that's, that's a small point. Um, no, it, it didn't really come close to falling off the calendar for the simple reason that, as, as I explained when I, when I was talking about how the Welsh Open came about, it's because of BBC Wales, OK? BBC Wales had this... They have regional sport that they like to show to showcase and, and celebrate, obviously, Wales and their own, their own uh, part of the world. And they have always had this slot right back to the national championships. And they, the one thing about the BBC, and they take a lot of criticism for various reasons, and certainly not just snooker, they are incredibly loyal to snooker. I mean, they have been loyal to snooker for decades, and BBC Wales are the same. They've always kept this slot. And because of that, the tournament was always going to be on. If they pulled out, it would have been in trouble. Obviously, now Eurosport have come in with home nations, um, and they both show it. So the Welsh Open actually um, was never really in danger, but the prize money did sink at one point. I think it was 30000 the winner at one point. And it was never... I think it's been boosted by being part of the home nations now. I think it's had a new lease of life being part of that, definitely. And Alpha's second question, leaving aside the controversies over sports washing, etc., is the new Saudi ranking event, after the Saudis bailed on the 2020 event, an admission of sorts by Matrium WST of their failure to crack other markets, i.e. all the tournaments that sprang up and then died without anyone noticing? <coughs> um... <laughs> Well, I mean, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I think it's true we've been to various places um, and not gone back. I'm not quite sure what happened in Riga. We went to, to, to that tournament in Latvia, the Riga Masters. That fell by the wayside, the Indian Open. Whether these were to do with COVID or other issues, I'm not sure. But I was talking to Neil Robertson. I don't think you mind me saying this, about the Australian Open. And I was saying, you know, because that was on for a few years. Do you think there's any chance of that coming back? And he said, and this is something that I hadn't really thought about, and this is maybe a lesson to us all when we think about these, these, these tournaments because these international territories, they have different laws and different regulations. The problem with Australia is there's an entertainer's tax, which apparently is 50%. So basically, whatever money you earn going there, you have to pay half of it back. And clearly, you know, from the snooker tournament, you basically got to win the tournament to, to make any meaningful money from it. So it's not attractive, therefore, to players to go there. And the tournament kind of died. Um, sort of thing we maybe wouldn't think about, but that's a reality. So there are challenges going to, to different countries. As I say, they have different... I mean, there's, there's been a bit of a controversy about one Thomas in China getting the money, getting the prize money, because it takes apparently three months to get the money. And as a freelancer, I can, <laughs> I can sympathise with that. Um, so, you know, you, you say failure to crack other markets. It's not so much about cracking the markets. It's about actually working within them. And that's not straightforward. But I think, I definitely feel things are turning a little now. And hopefully, you know, in the next few years, we will see more of these markets 
you know, being more successfully embraced. Just one thing on the Saudi tournament, by the way, before we put that to one side for now. I was listening to Stephen Hendry on the uh, Wilson Nicotel podcast. I'm always interested, obviously, what Stephen's got to say about this issue of the, because it was announced that it would be the fourth major. And Stephen said on, on there that he thought he welcomed the tournament, but he thought talk of a fourth major was premature. They, they were his words. Because events not even been staged yet. He said, he said a tournament needs a bit of history to be considered a major. And he actually said he thought the Tour Championship was more deserving. I thought it was quite interesting he said that on the World Snooker podcast. Obviously, they were the ones who announced it would be a major. Um, my view is, I think the players, I mean, the actual prize fund, and the, Phil Spivey wrote in about it, we haven't got the, the, the structure yet, Phil, or the prize money breakdown. But I think when it comes out, the players will regard this as the second biggest tournament behind the World Championship, just on a purely financial and opportunity-based level. I think uh, that's, that's how they'll see it. Now, of course, trenchant analysis of the, the key... Um, happenings in snooker and that's one thing but the reason people tune into this podcast really is for stories of banal meetings with snooker players and uh, Owen Burt has written now he's, he's in Clandino uh, well, he's been there anyway and he says and this is this is a blockbuster email because he says I thought I'd write in with no less than six of my banal meetings with snooker players you already know a couple of them as you reply to my tweet about them but thought they were worth sharing numbers one to four all happened within half an hour of each other when I was at the Welsh Open on Monday okay so these are Cute. Now, if you've never listened before, we, we like to hear uh, people's mundane meetings with snooker players, banal meetings. Basically, the, the rule really is that nothing kind of happens. You might nod at someone, you see them eating a bag of crisps, you know, in the street. We had Rory Thor from Malaysia who uh, was seen outside a subway throw, uh, throwing tomatoes in a bin. Um, that sort of thing, you know, glancing at someone and being too frightened to speak to them. All that sort of thing is what we what we like. And there's plenty of them here. So this is Owen. Uh, firstly, OK, in between sessions, we went to Weatherspoons for a bite to eat and was sat next to Liam Davis. No interaction exchange. He just took a chair from the table next to me. I heard him or one of his family order a large mixed grill. <laughs> this is perfect. This is exactly what we want. <coughs> he said, uh, number two. Driving back to the venue for the evening session, we saw a bald man with a cue case sprinting full pelt down the seafront in Clandidno. I thought to myself, surely not, but it was indeed John Higgins running towards the venue at lightning pace. We stopped and offered him a lift, but he couldn't understand what my dad was saying and looked rather confused, disgruntled. So if you see him around, please reassure him it was an innocent offer, not verbal abuse. <laughs> Number three. Five minutes later, we popped into a petrol station behind the venue to get some sweets. Not noisy, not sweets and noisy wrappers, of course. I bumped into Alexander Ersenbacher buying an energy drink. For some reason, all I could get out was, all right, mate, as if he knew who I was. He smiled and returned the favour, though. Lovely chap. OK, moving on. We then made it towards the venue and saw a bloke with a baseball cap carrying a snooker cue. I definitely made too much eye contact while trying to work out who it was. But it turned out to be Adam Duffy. He was on the phone, though, so it was just a simple nod. Uh, number five, away from Clandidno at one of Liam Gallagher's Nebworth gigs back in 2022, believe it or not, I bumped into Liam Highfield. For a moment, I did think I was seeing things, as there were 80,000 other people there who looked and dressed exactly the same. But it was definitely him. And number six, my final extremely banal meeting was a few years ago. I just got back from an overnight flight from Greece to Manchester. I got to the arrivals area, looked up and see none other than Rod Lawler doing the airport pickup. Neither of us looked impressed with being awake at that time, so no interactions were exchanged. <laughs> so that's what, there's plenty there, isn't there? There really is. Uh, Owen adds, I won't go into full details of my trip to Clandidno. I'll split my allegiances and save that for talking snooker. How about that at the end there? There's, a, there's, a, there's one in the ribs. 
Those are revists. Uh, anyway, he says, but I think those first Mondays at the Home Nations are an amazing way to watch snooker. I massively recommend it. I went to both sessions of the final last year, and this wasn't far off being just as enjoyable. The milking story is the only thing that pips it. I think it's perfect for young fans and new fans to be introduced to the sport with short formats, more relaxed atmosphere and lots of games and players to choose from, not to mention for less than 30 quid a ticket. Unbelievable value for money. Thanks for reading all the best. Well, same to you, Owen. It's terrific that you enjoyed that. Thanks for the uh, the reporting of those <laughs> banal meetings. And, yeah, you're right about the value for money. It really is uh, good stuff there. <coughs> you get to see, like you say, just a turnover of matches. If you don't like one, there'll be another one along in a minute. And you can sit... I mean, day one lasted over 15 hours. If you're really into snooker, you could literally sit there all day just enjoying it. So, uh, you know, tickets, obviously, at the Crucible and, and Alexandra Palace and those sort of marquee events... Yeah, they, they have gone up, and, and some people may feel they've gone up too much, but there is value to be had, and there's lovely places I'm sure you'd agree to go to, Clandidden over a few days. Now, <coughs> Christian uh, has written in here with another uh, banal meeting with snooker players. Now, I was looking for a cliffhanger the, uh, for, after the first episode. This could have been it, because what I like about Christian here, he teases who the characters are. We don't get to hear who they are until later on. So, you you know, in your own mind, you're sort of guessing, and this could have been the cliffhanger if, if it had come in in time. But anyway, he says, I know I'm very late to the party, but I finally would like to take the opportunity and make a contribution towards the banal meetings with snooker players section. What I have for you is not one, not two, but three strange encounters with two different snooker players and one snooker player along with a female referee. Now, that's teasing, isn't it? Who could it be? So you see, he's already, you know, like a, like a master storyteller, you know, teasing this out. Anyway, he says it's ridiculous, really, to tell the first two encounters, especially no word was spoken between me and the players, so I myself would not even have considered those meetings up until this podcast section came around and encouraged me to finally present what happened. Firstly, I tell you that all three meetings came about in the city of Firth since the Paul Hunter Classic is the only snooker tournament I ever attended in person. They happened in different years, though. On to the first one. I was standing outside the Stathalle, just near the entrance, near the landing of the big staircase, which leads to the floor, where all the tables are located. Various players are getting ready for the matches, walking around. But some unknown reasons, but for some unknown reasons, just at the moment when Martin Gould is about to descend the stairs, the exclamation Martin escapes from my mouth, probably just out of joy that I recognised a well-known snooker player. The thing is, as already mentioned, there were other high-ranked players walking around and I didn't shout out their names. Anyway, the damage was done. Martin Gould had heard his first name. He turned to me and we looked at each other for several seconds, which felt very long. But of course, I couldn't say a word because of my shyness. Finally, Martin turned around again and went down the stairs to the top. This actually reminds me, Christian, of uh, my encounter with Bob Chaperon. Now, there's a sentence for you. But uh, I went to the World Masters in Birmingham, and there were a lot, very similar. There were a lot of players standing round, better-known players. But, of course, Bob Chaperon, this was 1991. Bob Chaperon had won the British Open the year before, a big ITV event. And uh, I could see sort of people going up to the other players, asking for their autographs. No one up to him, so I actually went up to him. Um, and, and asked him to sign... I said, could you sign your photo in the programme? And there was a rather excruciating few minutes as he was turning page after page. And I was begging beyond belief that his picture was actually in the programme. It was in the end. Towards the back, it's got to be said. Anyway, um, so, sorry, I've interrupted you there. So Christian continues. Uh, the second one, this time outside the Stathalle, 200 metres or so away from the entrance. I had just arrived and was on my way from the train station to the hall when Alexander Ursenbacher came towards me. So this is the second uh, mention for Alex. I think uh, I think he was buying an energy drink in the previous one. 
he was already dressed in his suit and probably had already played a game or two and was on his way to the hotel now since he was, it was around lunchtime. The two of us, uh, the two of us could have talked so easily with each other since our common native language is German. But what happened, of course, was that we just gave each other the usual nod and ran past each other again, of course, because of my shyness. I have to say, uh, Christian, Alex is a lovely bloke. He would have chatted, definitely. Anyway, uh, we continue. Now, on to the third and final one. I was hinting that this was an encounter with a snooker player alongside a female referee. Well, of course, you've guessed it by now. I'm talking about the Wollastons, of course. It took place in a German restaurant in the centre of Furth during lunchtime again. A session of snooker was played, and it was time to get oneself a meal. Of course, there's Italian food, Turkish food, fast food, etc., available in Furth, as well as the traditional German restaurants. Uh, uh... And the traditional German restaurants get fewer and fewer. But since I like our food, I went to a German restaurant as always. I ordered lunch and after ten minutes or so, to my greatest surprise, Ben and Tatiana Wollaston entered the locality. I was stunned so much thinking about that. Uh, I'm just thinking that I'm just right now witnessing an extreme intimate situation with two persons which I've often seen on camera. That once more I couldn't take this excellent chance to tell them that I'm glad to meet them even when they struggle to order some food because the whole menu was written in the German language. See, this, just jumping in, this is sort of snooker's posh and becks, I suppose. Coming like, if they came in, you'd think, oh wow, you know, what, what do I do? And clearly you were a little bit overawed. Christian continues, that's why I was partially stunned as well. I just thought it would have been easier for foreigners to go to a restaurant where they'd be able to quickly order a meal which has an international name, like a pizza or something like that. But it was nice to see that they entered a German restaurant instead, probably out of interest in the German culture too, since it was an old and traditionally built German building. I was three metres away from them and could have had a nice chat with them, translating the menu, telling them I'm here in town for the snook as well. But no, the barkeeper had to do it instead, and I'm 100% sure, judging by her behaviour, she didn't know who she had in front of her at all. They ended up ordering sausages, which are pretty famous in the Nuremberg region, of course, and behaved very well. So yeah, they're my three really banal meetings with snooker players. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Dave, for always putting everything that's happening in the snooker world into a context in such a sensible manner. Well, thank you, Christian, and uh, next time you see uh, any of these people, maybe maybe do pluck up the courage to say hello, because they're all, you know, very nice. That You're all there for the same reason, which is the snooker, of course. Uh, we continue. Now, Adam, he's also in Germany. He said, I sent an email to you some years ago about simulation technologies potentially becoming a small part of a snooker player's development as standard. Firstly, thank you for reading it out. Secondly, upon your reading of said email, I realised that I managed to waffle on excessively in quite a profoundly heroic way. So I aim to keep this one more concise. Mercifully, I also want to discuss a different topic this time, namely the great Mark Williams, who, like most snooker fans, I admire a lot. I have a vague memory that Mark, in a bizarre incident, no, not that one, once tossed his cue in the air, failed to catch it properly, and the butt then went on to damage the cloth upon contact with the table. I did an internet search for this incident, but didn't find any mentions of it or videos. I think this probably occurred 15, 20 years ago now, but I'm starting to convince myself it never happened. Do you or any of the listeners have any recollection of this incident? If this was a sheer fabrication on my part, then I apologise to Mark for my hazy memory. Keep up the self-deprecating humour, and thanks again for the very enjoyable podcast. Also, let's hope Mark has another excellent run at the Crucible this year. I have to say, Adam, I have no memory of this at all. It sounds like the sort of thing Mark might do, in fairness, but I, I, I just don't have any memory of it. Peter Ebdenworth ripped the, uh, Peter Ebden once ripped the cloth at the Crucible. Um, not deliberately, obviously, but uh, I don't remember Mark throwing his cup in the air. But if anyone does remember that, then, uh, well, let us know. Uh, Tom Milliard, uh, his name rhymes pretty much with billiards, but anyway, that's by the by. Uh, a couple of issues from Tom. 
As always, great work on the podcast and being the voice of the snooker public. How about that? He says, just a couple of things. First, he's a fan of Judd Trump. I was amazed to see him withdraw from both the champion, uh, Championship League and the Welsh this week. Well, it's probably just a projection from me rather than the actual mindset of Judd. I always believed Judd to be into statistics. Not only did he give up the chance of reaching a 1,000 centuries this week, but also probably gave up the opportunity of beating the 103 record of Robertson. As John Higgins has shown, an extended run in the Championship League can rack up the tons. Additionally, by withdrawing from the Welsh, he limits the possibility of beating his own record in ranking events in a season. Over the years, I don't really remember Judd pulling out of events, and I hope this isn't a view of the future. I'll answer these one by one there, uh, <coughs> uh, Adam. Not, uh, not Adam, Tom. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, obviously, it's up to him what he does. I think I, I, I kind of thought a lot about something Nasser Hussein said on the Sky Cricket okay, uh, last year. Um, at the end of a test match, which obviously can, over five days, be up and down, and, and certain incidents on day two at the time seem important, by the end they aren't, or, or... Well, anyway, what he was saying was, he said, whatever happens in a sporting event, a narrative is put on it as if it's always been there. In other words, it's kind of retrofitted. So, Judd Trump taking this week off, if he goes and wins the Players' Championship next week, people will say, oh, he was right to recharge his batteries. I think he's gone to Dubai, that's up to him where he's gone. But I think he's gone on holiday for, a few, for just a little break. People say he's right to take the week off and recharge his batteries. Good for him, he's you know managing his, his season well. If he bombs out round one next week, people will say, what was he doing taking the week off? He's lost sharpness, he's lost, lost match fitness, he shouldn't have done it. Whatever happens to him next week, that narrative will be put on it. Only he really knows how to you know, operate his life. He's doing well. He decided not to play in the Championship League. I was a little surprised, personally, he pulled out the Welsh Open because I just think he's on that great run. Like you say, he might want to continue it, but there's a lot of snooker coming up. I suppose that's how he's looking at it. Quite a bit of travelling as well. That's the other thing. When he was winning a lot of those sort of five, six tournaments a year before, a lot of them are actually in Milton Keynes, a lot of them are in Britain. There's now more travelling to be done, so maybe he's trying to just reserve a little bit of stamina for that. It's up to him at the end of the day. Uh, he's doing great. The statistics thing is interesting. I mentioned the thousand centuries. As I record this now, John Higgins is still playing, of course, in the Welsh Open, but he's he's only uh, 14 centuries, I think it is now. Uh, maybe 15, uh, maybe 13. For, for 13 or 14 centuries off a thousand, whereas Judd Trump is 33 away. So, you know, that, that, that decision not to play for two weeks has made a difference with that, but I, I don't know the extent to which Trump cares about being the second man. He's going to be the youngest player by far to do it. Um, yeah, I, I guess the point I'm making is he can kind of decide that for himself. Tom continues, secondly, the announcement of the Saudi event. While not wanting to discuss the morals issues of such an event, I'm interested in the impact this will have upon the season as a whole. With the huge pri- prize fund on offer, this will completely skew the one-year list. Probably all quarter-finalists, perhaps even the last 16, will almost be guaranteed Grand Prix and potentially players' participation. We already see this to some extent in the UK Championship, and probably this event will double the prize fund. Uh, furthermore, the timing of the event seems to be slightly odd, far away from the usual snooker season, the building of excitement which happens across the season. I hope this rather early birth in the calendar can be successful, but personally I'm still in summer holiday mode about then. Um, yeah, again, I mean, I, I actually quite like the fact it's early. It's the first big tournament of the season and you're not waiting until kind of October for it as maybe we have done in the past it's a, it's a big early one if you look at the tennis majors you know they're spread out first one's in January last one is actually in about this slot end of August early September um, the golf majors have actually become a little group together um, but essentially sort of April and then I think the last one is 
Well, it's actually, I think he, now, now it's late June. It used to be later. No, it's obviously July, the open, isn't it? Um, but anyway, I think it's good to spread them out. Um, and, and you have to work with the, you know, the local, um, promoters and when they want them and the TV and all the rest of it. So, you know, you, you get the slot you get. I don't have an issue with the slot. Um, it, it's true that obviously it will, you say it'll skew the one year list. Well, that's another incentive for doing well in it, I guess. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of big first prizes next season, the Chinese events as well. So the race to get in those player series events will, um, if anything, kind of increase. But I think that's all good, personally. And uh, Tom concludes, lastly, your listener Ziggy raised an interesting point about playing on when only the black remains. Can you not play on in the hope the other player fouls? For example, a miscure in and off. You gain seven points, the black's still on the table. Unlikely, of course, but not impossible. No, because if you're... If, if, if someone's eight in front, um, even if they're going off, they've still won the frame. You don't... You don't you don't put the black back on. The black only comes back on if it's level. It's a respot. Um, so, uh, yeah, exactly that. Really, you, the, the frame ends with the black either being potted or fouled. That they, that is essentially the, well, that is the rule. Um, anyway, thank you, Tom. Uh, we've got some more to get through here. I say get through. That sounds like it's obligation. But um, what else do we have? Is the question. Uh, let's go to. Uh, Henry Cutting. And let's see how cutting Henry is here. If you forgive a small pun, Henry. He says, I'm a relative new listener, so apologies if this question has been asked before. Who does the stats during the match and how are they judged? For example, if a player plays an obviously poor safety but ends up not leaving a pot on, does that still go down as safety success? And similarly, if a player plays a brilliant safety but the opponent then either flukes one or pots the next ball, does that go down as a safety failure? Another example is when a player plays an exhibition shot on the black at the end of the frame and misses. Does this still go down... As a miss on the pot success stats. Thank you, Henry. On that last point, <clears throat> that you raise an interesting point here. It does, yeah. If they miss the black in, the, in that circumstance, it does go down as a miss on the pot success stats. But on ITV now, um, we have a new stat, live pot success, which we were discussing. We were actually discussing in an Indian restaurant um, last year, and it's now come to pass. And so we've still got the pot success stats, but the live pot success essentially is... Balls potted when you have to pot them, i.e. not when not when snookers are required, when the frame is still live, and that's quite an interesting one to look at because that is balls potted when when it's imperative that you pot them. So look out for that one next week at the Players Championship. And worth saying as well, um, you can watch the second table now at the Players Championship in the UK on ITVX, which is the streaming platform. There'll be commentary with Joe Perry and Michael McMillan um, on table two which is an operation for three days. Um, that's been a complaint I know people have had that, or an issue people have had, that they like to obviously keep across both matches. Well, now you can. So that's going to be uh, a new innovation. All all balls potted, all balls missed, all shots taken will be available next week. On the business of safety stats, this is a bit of a murky area. When it comes to who does it, there's, there's, there's people out in the trucks and the OB vans for, who work on the graphics, and they log every shot played. And they will judge it. I mean, pot success is pretty obvious. <laughs> you know, the ball's gone in. I think some of these stats should come with a he- with a safety war- health and safety warning, though, because what you, what is a successful safety? Okay, what is the barometer for a successful safety? Is it literally you, okay? The balls in the cue balls in bulk. You're playing thin off a red to come back round the angles back into bulk. If you do that, that's judged a success essentially. And, it, you know, you get a, you know, they press the button, that's a success. But, if, if your opponent then comes to the table, knocks in a long red, it hasn't been successful, has it? It's been successful in, you've got the cue ball to about where you want it to be, 
but but if the opposing player then knocks a ball in, in the in the scheme of things, he's not been successful. So I think these stats they're interesting, but they they only tell part of the story, and maybe it could be argued they're a little bit overused. But it, they, I think it's good to have them. But I, the safety one is is for the reasons you kind of. I've kind of gone through can be a little bit kind of not misleading but needs to come with a health warning I think <coughs> uh, now Mark Williams another week another torment I'm already enjoying the op- I'm enjoying the opening day of the Welsh Open had to chuckle at the technical hitch now this was uh, the, the, the uh, monitor I think um, can't try to shut down I think we, we've a lot of us have seen TVs like that where if, you, if you don't press a button for an hour or so they try and turn themselves off to save energy uh, Mark says, it's been well mentioned already on the podcast, the problems with the scoring system, so I won't trawl that up again. But it's getting to be a bit of a joke now. It's about time someone bit the bullet and spent the cash for a proper system. Still funny, though. What are you and the other viewers' views on Ronnie O'Sullivan's Eurosport comments regarding the players with or without a snooker brain? It's been said before that his comments like this could be harsh, and it did look as if Alan was a bit uneasy. But I like the open and honest words from Ronnie, giving his assessment of the players, remembering his baseline is of a very high standard compared to the rest. Bad shots or misses can be put down to various things and happen to every player, but playing the correct shot and knowing to play the correct shot is that bit of spark which shines through the best. I do enjoy when Ronnie's on the, in his in the Eurosport office. His commentary and thoughts can be so different from the norm, and I agree whether I agree with them or not. Nobody can deny the spice it adds, and sometimes controversy it gets everyone talking more about the sport we love. Keep up the more regular podcasts. Mark Williams, not that one. Well, thanks, Mark. Um... Yes, Mark. Well, the technology thing, I mean, as I say, you know, it was just a bit unfortunate. In terms of what Ronnie said, it's about John Astley. I think on the on the face of it, what he said, I mean, listen, people like him and Stephen Hendry have earned the right to speak directly and give their thoughts honestly. And I think I always prefer to think that whoever the pundit is in whatever sport, they're not saying a different thing when the camera goes off. They're, they're telling you what they think because that's what they're paid to do. And Ronnie has a very kind of honest way of talking. Um, and I think what he was saying, he was saying you, you know, you either, you either, um, as you say, have a snooker brain so you can rely on a bit of nous and a bit of sort of tablecraft, or you, you sort of get through with great technique. Um, and he was saying, he was questioning some of the shots John Asty was playing and was questioning whether he should be a professional. I, that is the aspect of it where I think some people felt he went a bit too far. You don't like to hear, um, people being told they shouldn't be playing. There's something about that that's not very appetising, I think. Um, but, like I say, he's there to give an opinion. And, like you say, his level and where he starts from is much higher than everyone else's. He looks at snooker from the top of the mountain top, I guess. Um, and I'm sure he sees some things that he sort of can't fathom. Um, so it's kind of an interesting insight, and I guess that's why he's, he's there in the first place. Colin Johnston writes... Listening to the most recent excellent episode of the podcast, I was going to say last week's, but we've been blessed with more than more than of late. How lucky I was that a number of my passions and interests were linked to it. A county three, namely snooker, of course, carry-on films and the Smiths. Uh, another main interest of mine is bread making. So I thought, why not also add that to the mix this week and complete the set for me? Uh, he says, you can probably already tell what direction the link between snooker players and bread making is going to follow. Uh... Of course, he, well, I, I, there's various jokes I can make here about earning a crust, but we'll move on, Colin, because time's pressing on. He says, firstly, snooker, of course, you touched last time on whether this might be the time to look at the draw format 
what with the return of events in China, moving to a tiered format versus flat draw. Could I ask if you could kindly add a bit more flesh to the bones about the differences between the two and how a tiered format differs to the current? I'm not sure if I'm correct here, but is the current format, say, taking the first round draw, there are two pots with the top 64 being drawn against the bottom 64. So would the tiered draw include, say, more pots with lower-ranked players being drawn against each other than the higher-ranked players getting involved in round two or three later in the tournament. Not sure if I'm right in my summary here. Hope you can enlighten. <coughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. It used to be... If you look at the World Championship and the UK Championship, OK, so in that, the top 16 start in the last 32 and there's a qualifying competition to get down to the top 32 and it's tiered. So the players at the bottom of the rankings all play off against each other. They go into the next round. The next set of players come in. They play each other, then the next set of players from the ranking list come in, and so on and so on. It's four rounds, and then you get the last 32 at the venue. The flat draw system, everyone's in in round one. And what it means is, if you're, let's say, Stan Moody, a new professional, you could draw Ronnie O'Sullivan, or Judd Trump, or any of those guys in round one. And to me, that makes it harder to progress, because you're playing the best players in the world, some of the best players you've ever played in round one, rather than starting out against players around your level. And that is... What, what the argument against the tiered system is there's more matches you've got to win to get to the get onto TV, get to the final stages. The argument for it is you're avoiding those more difficult players until you get into the final stages. And it does actually put pressure on the top players as well because in the world in the UK, if they lose in that last 32 round, the top 16, they don't get any ranking points. So that is a massive match for them, even though they've got the advantage in one sense of being seeded through. In terms of rankings, it's actually a big, big match, that. And we've seen a few players lose. You know, they're best in the world, but they're under pressure. So that's essentially it. And I'll be interested to see what the Saudi event is, because that, you know, I'm sure, as has been said, that they want the top players to be there as of right. So we'll find out in due course what that format's going to be. Colin continues, I tried to leave the carry-on films behind, but they've come back here. He says, you're correct, of course, in your opinion, that carry-on Clio is the best of the series. Made so, Phil, by some excellent performances by what you might call the second tier, uh, namely Charles Hawtrey and Kenneth Connor. And we're right down to the, the key business here, aren't we? He says, there's a great throwaway word play near the start of the film where the Roman army are marching to the chance of sinister uh, Dexter, uh, which as any schoolboy will know is, of course, Latin for left-right. I would add by stating that the four carry-ons made in succession between 1964 and 67 really were the golden period, namely Cleo Cowboy, Screaming and the sometimes overlooked "Don't lose your head." A close second to clear. I mean, we're down, you know, this is not necessarily you know at- attacking the, the key issues of the snooker world. But carry on, don't lose your head. There's a great line in that. Charles Hawtrey's actually in it, and uh, he's, of course, he's set in the French Revolution, and he, he's under the guillotine, about to have his head cut off, and uh, someone brings him a, 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 a this sort of uh, scroll to read, and he says, he says, "I'll, I'll put it in the basket. I'll read it later." <laughs> anyway. Um, we're drifting away from the key issues here. He says there was discussion, this is Colin again, there was discussion on the last episode about no Smiths having played at the Crucible. Uh, of course, we're forgetting, I think, Anthony McGill's walk-on music for a while was in fact this charming man by the Smiths. Okay, they didn't pick up a cue, but still. Of course, Morrissey's gone a bit mad, hasn't he? But maybe we'll gloss over that. Uh, and he says, finally, to return to snooker and not get distracted by other nonsense, I shoehorn in my other aforementioned interest in bread-making. <coughs> Uh, to that end, and what's become a staple of the podcast is of late, I bring you snooker players with an obvious link to bread. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> T- okay, now, the, the, the chap earlier, Daniel, who, who, who was outraged last time, turned off. Let's hope he's turned off this week, because here we go. We've got snooker players linked to bread. Okay, Tony Drado. Okay, 
Woo Yeaster, Dominic Style, Quinton Narn, and Need Robertson. And, and, and Colin himself says that one doesn't work. <laughs> but he still included it, which I quite kind of admire. Thank you, Colin. Uh, now then, Mark Wallace. He says, given your recent dream, I thought I would ask AI models for their predictions for the World Championship. You may enjoy their responses. Okay, so this is AI, our, our dear friend, the robots who are going to kill us all. This is what they have to say. He says, unfortunately, it's impossible to predict who for certain will win the World Championship as the tournament starts on April the 13th. It doesn't actually, by the way. Just, I don't want to pick a fight with a robot. It starts on the 20th. <coughs> anyway, he says, uh, I can give you some information that might help you make your prediction. Uh, so he says, the defending champion is Luca Brassell. He'll be looking to defend his title. Yeah, thanks for that, robot. We kind of know that. He says, current form, based on recent performances, some players who seem to be in good form. Ronnie O'Sullivan, Judd Trump, Mark Selby, Mark Allen and Sean Murphy. Betting odds are telling us that Ronnie O'Sullivan is the favourite, followed by Trump and Selby. Uh, sorry, I just lost my way here. says, remember, these are, these are just some factors to consider. Any player can have a good run and win the tournament. Ultimately, with the winner, with the one who performs best under pressure at the Crucible Theatre. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, we put a lot of store into this technology, but kind of anybody listening to this podcast could have said that. Um, but as I say, I don't want to pick fight with, fights with robots because you never know what might happen. It could be next week a robot will be presenting this podcast. Um, now, uh, we've got a couple more. Uh, Paul Regan, he says, uh, I'm concerned my previous email run on a bit and I didn't want it to feel like a chore. Okay, sorry, he sent two emails. He sent, he sent a shorter version, okay? So he says, a brief follow-up to my recent email about Qs. I noticed while digging on the WPC website that Dominic Dale contributed a History of Qs article. I also know he had a bit of a reputation for collecting Qs and various snooker and billiards memorabilia. Have you considered an episode with Dominic on this subject? His knowledge here, plus his playing experience, would bring interesting insight on the kit we use in the game, I'm sure. Not just history, but also Q specs and how they affect the game, etc. Sec well, I mean, Dominic's actually been on... Um, the podcast a few years ago now. We're not about cues necessarily, just about his career. But uh, maybe you want to consider. He did a thing with Will Snooker Tour on the YouTube channel, sort of ten minute video talking about cues with uh, my good friend Tai Chengzi, the Chinese photographer and indeed broadcaster. And um, it's worth checking that out because Dominic is an expert on it. No, no two ways about it. Uh, Paul says, secondly, a slightly bigger observation about the growing and maybe changing demographic of snooker. This occurred to me at Ali Pali last month. The age range of variety of people at the venue was broader than I expected, given the well-worn assumption that the sport skews working class and older male. Given against the backdrop of growing TV audience figures and increased ticket sales, it made me wonder about the shape and evident burgeoning interest. It can't just be more of the same people watching the game, can it? I found research for a recent Statista survey that showed snooker participation in England jumped massively in 2022. And I mean hugely. Uh, it's more than four, a fourfold increase based on a survey of 177,000 people. So not just people watching the sport, they're playing it too. It also occurred to me that alongside the late, likely baby boomers picking up the sport in retirement, there might be a new group of Gen X and early millennials who grew up in the 80s and 90s heyday of snooker who now find themselves at a stage in their life with a bit more time and disposable income. This certainly seems evident in my local league. The curious thing is why. If the demographic is growing and changing, Will Snooker Tour finds itself so reliant on betting companies for sponsorship. This is an especially important question given likely upcoming restrictions on gambling advertising. And it's not like Snooker hasn't been here before with tobacco's departure from the scene. 
Now, hang on, someone's ringing my room. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take this call. Excuse me. Yeah, sorry about that interruption. That was the reception. Uh, they're asking when, when I'm going to stop recording this podcast. No, they weren't really. It was a, it was a minor issue. Anyway, we continue. <laughs> we continue. I'm not sure where we were up to. He said, uh, it's not like there hasn't been before with tobacco departs from the scene. Kazoo is a helpful cavalry, but his future isn't exactly sure far. Given how close you are to the sport, I wonder if you had any thoughts. Cashing in on the growing interest in snooker seems pivotal to the future of the game. Exactly the area Clive would have had his forensic claws into. All the best. Many thanks to the podcast as always. Thank you, Paul. Um, well, of course, interestingly, this week a new sponsor has been announced uh, that he's not gambling, it's not um, cryptocurrency or anything like that. It's Johnston, Johnston Paint, um, a, a well-known a brand of paint. Um, Going to be sponsoring the Players Series, Players Championship and Tour Championship. And next season, uh, in the press release, it said they'd be sponsoring other things. So that's a good move. That's a different sponsor from the high street. Uh, recognisable, relatable sponsor. Um, not the first paint sponsor, of course. People remember many years ago, Dulux sponsored the British Open. And it got to the stage, and this was the 1980s. Uh, if you look at the... Uh, it's a bit niche, but, I mean, that's what we're here for. In 1987 British Open, uh, the programme came out. And they, of course, had the Dulux dog. Lovely dog it was, the Dulux dog. And uh, they put a pair of Dennis Taylor glasses on it on the front of the programme. You could do that in the 1980s. You could put a pair of glasses on a dog. Nobody complained. Um, so anyway, it's not the first paint sponsor, but it's uh, it's a it's a step in a different direction. And you you make a very uh, good point there about the the increase in interest, participation. There's definitely an upward curve. That's a fact. You know, if you look at the Welsh Open this week, it's been packed pretty much every day. I mean, obviously, a lot of people buy tickets in advance, but the, the the lack of O'Sullivan and Trump hasn't made any difference to live attendance. It's been full. Um, we haven't got the viewing figures yet, but there's, there's huge interest in these events, and uh, hopefully that will inspire more companies to get involved with snooker. There is still a kind of <coughs> perception of snooker that needs to change the sort of demographics. I think partly because they are so diverse. It's not just, as you say, middle-aged white men. It's actually diverse. I think the problem with that is it's a good thing in one way, but in another way, it's hard to know who potential sponsors should be targeting. They look around and think, well, who is our audience? Um, but there's definitely, again, um, sort of room for optimism about that, and we welcome, of course, Johnston Paint into the uh, into the fold. Simon Thompson... Time and again, you show us what a quality broadcaster you are. What about that for a first sentence? So Simon obviously knew this would be read out, but thank you, Simon. Uh, he says, I noticed this particularly on Wednesday evening during the Higgins Day match when you made a delightful quip about getting a nice kiss on Valentine's. All the joke emails you'll be reading out lately have clearly had an influence. While I'm on the subject, I have to admire your restraint. Lesser broadcasters might have made a similar comment about a deep screw shot or the choice of an easy ping, etc. It's a little below the waist, that's Simon, but anyway, thank you. He says... Uh, how about a new joke section in which listeners email bawdy coarse or crude attempts at humour, snooker aid obviously, that are simply too cheap or offensive for you to view to stomach? No need to read the content, just the correspondent's name and a succinct narrative of just how horrified or sickened you were. When this feature becomes the overnight sensation, I predict it will, you may even want to introduce clues as to what the joke could have been, including non-controversial details, such as shot choice and equipment used. You could even have a prize for somebody guessing the punchline. To end on a sincere note, thanks for all the commentary and podcasts. I seem to remember a while ago you ended one saying you didn't know if or when the next podcast was going to be brought out or whether it would continue in any form whatsoever. So glad you decided to carry on. Uh, thank you, Simon. I'm not sure. That, oh, I may have said that. I don't know. I said a lot of things. Um, the fact is we're still here, aren't we? Um, 
I, I mean, I'm, yes, I don't mind offensive humour, actually, but um, the problem is other people do mind it. <laughs> so that's why reading it out uh, might, might be an issue, but uh, if you want to send, let's be honest, filthy jokes, feel free. I don't have to read them out, of course. Now, the reason that the hotel rang, I've got to move rooms in a minute, so I, I need to finish this podcast soon. Um, so <laughs> Michael Holt, but not that one. He's in San Diego. He says, greetings and felicitations from the San Diego chapter of the Snooker Scene Podcast, Appreciation Society. I write on two topics from recent listener emails. As a snooker player for many years in the UK, I loyally stuck with what I regarded as my perfect cue and subscribed to the view that a cue was as individual as a fingerprint and should be sought after rather like the mythical wizard's wand and once found be cherished forever lest you lose warp or break it and find yourself bereft and unable to play to the same standard ever again. Having relocated to San Diego, where snooker is vanishingly rare, and being keen to continue enjoying cue sports, I began playing the various disciplines of American pool, which I've grown to appreciate deeply and love every bit as much as snooker's pool, a la Neville Chamberlain. One night, after a few too many sherbets, I left my first mid-range pool cue in a bar after a league match, and so, taking the game more seriously and laying off the booze, I invested in a higher-end cue, a Predator P3, which came with a carbon fibre shaft. Since then, I've steadily added to my pool equipment and my case now contains a total of three different cue butts and four shafts, all carbon fibre. A brake cue, a jump cue, an identical and spare shaft for my playing cue in case I have any tip issues during a match. I'm off to Vegas soon for the BCA pool, World Pool Championships where there'll be over 8,000 other players, many with even more equipment <coughs> and multiple cue shafts and butts they happily interchange during play. It's really not the tool but the user, although it's fair to say that modern technology has produced many excellent tools such as ultra-low deflection shafts which enable the use of side with minimal throw, the maximum transfer of power when braking or ease of elevation when playing jump shots. Suffice to say, it's really not the case that one cues for life and should be eagerly pursued like some elusive magical talisman. And finally, on the ongoing saga of the misrule, now snooker is a global sport with millions of pounds in prize money syndicated on networks around the world and wants to be seen as a premier sport to rival any other. How is it that we're still... The world of left a bit, right a bit, to me, to you, out of the Chuckle Brothers when it comes to replacing the balls after a miss. The technology exists, indeed, he's already sold here in the US as a billiard training tool. It's a video projector which is mounted above the table and projects the positions of the balls clearly and precisely from above. This machine needs a little addition to capture the position of all the balls, which I'm sure any adept programmer can whip up an algorithm for in a trice, and then following a miss at the press of a button, the position of every ball will be laid out to the millimetre without and further Chuckle Brothers nonsense. Come on, World Snooker Tour, get with it. Thanks once again for your wonderful podcast and loving the increased frequency of episodes. Keep them coming. Well, thank you, Mike. And uh, yes, he, he puts a link to this projector. I mean, I think most people agree that could be done better and your idea is as good as any. On the subject of cues, it's interesting, Anthony McGill, uh, he won uh, in the last 32 round of the uh, Welsh Open, as I record this last night, Wednesday night, Beat Mark Williams, no less, at the Welsh Open. But uh, he, because he's back to a wooden cue now. He, he had the carbon fibre one, and he tried it for a bit, and now he's back to the more traditional. I think players increasingly are experimenting. John Higgins has had his cue altered, and, and there's lots of that going on. Um, but ultimately, yeah, you have to be satisfied with the cue, and you have to be comfortable with it. But ultimately, it's down to you. <laughs> you know, regardless of what equipment you're using, you've got to be in the right place, and you've got to perform. Um, otherwise, it's kind of almost an irrelevance, actually, what cue you're actually using. Now, Paul Dempsey has written in. Now, Paul is a first-time uh, emailer, and he's made up for it because he's, he's written in a quite a lengthy email, Paul, with 
11 different points you've raised. I'm going to save this email to next week because I don't have time. I don't want to skim it. I want to show due respect, but it's not really time right now. I've got to move rooms. <laughs> um, so we'll come to that next week, Paul. I'm not ignoring it, but we will come to that next week. We're going to end with Richard, <coughs> Richard Bassey, uh, currently back in Oregon. So it's been tums- some time since I last wrote because I was travelling Europe for 10 months. More in a near future email. Now, some people there, Richard, might assume you're on the run in some way. A fugitive from justice. I'm not saying that. I'm saying other people might say it. Uh, but we'll find out the reasons why he was travelling Europe for 10 months shortly. But anyway, he says, I made a vow I wouldn't write to you until I'd finished my first task, which I've completely completed a matter of minutes ago, and I wanted you to be the first to see. It's a Google map I created showing locations of billiard equipment manufacturers and billiard and snookles in Birmingham and the surrounding areas. I've researched this during my visit to England in the first few months of 2023. You'll see the markers I've created on the map are in three colours. Now, I understand people aren't, can't see this, but um, it's a magnificent thing. It's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it is what, what it says it is. It's the billiard halls that um, historically have been uh, present in Birmingham. It says, with more time, I feel I could have made it even more comprehensive, but that can be on the back burner as a project. It's made for now, can always be added to later. Regarding my Euro- European trip, for now I will tease that I played on tables in Vienna, Bratislava, Budapest, Bucharest, Sofia, Belgrade, Zagreb, Ljubljana, Nice, Lyon, Klenethli, Newcastle and a few more too. More about these venues and the size, scale and skill level in these scenes in the near future. Now this could be, this sounds like a travel series to me. Michael Palin, you know, back in the day, he'd be all over this. Uh, sounds fantastic, Richard. He says, for now I'll leave you hopefully to enjoy my first completed task. If you feel it worthy, you're more than welcome to share it. Thank you for your continued thoughtfulness, honest views and rational arguments. It's clear to those of us who listen carefully that you're a fan and proponent of the game as a whole rather than of against any one player or stakeholder. Thank you, Richard. Well, I'll, I'll put the, uh, what we rather grandly call the show notes, I'll put that link to uh, the map of these uh, locations in Birmingham for anyone interested. Thank you for that. Um, as I say, Paul, we'll read your email out next week, but I'm going to have to go now. Um, <laughs> such is uh, first world problems. We'll be back after the Welsh Open. Um, one thing I did look at today, because we've got eight players, as I record, there's eight players in the last 16. Only three of them are members of the top 16, but I noticed seven of them had won ranking events. There's a lot more players than you would think have won more ranking events. Okay, There's 129 players on the ranking list on the World Snooker Tour. 41 of them have won ranking events, so that's a third of the field, effectively. And another 16 have been in ranking finals, so 57 players... Very nearly half the, the total number of players on the tour have reached a ranking final. So it just shows you how strong the game is, the strength and depth in the game. There's so many players capable of doing well in tournaments. And, um, well, maybe that number will increase over the next few days. Enjoy the rest of the Welsh Open. We're on to the Players' Championship next week. Um, but that's it for now. So you can email us, snookerscenepodcast.mail.com. It's snookerscenepodcast.mail.com. But for now, thanks for listening. And as we always say... Goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.